At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. When we pick up a book, we know we are going to be told a story. We trust the author, or in the case of first-person point of view, the narrator, to tell us the truth. We might be reading about vengeful ghosts or glorious dragons that take our imagination to the very limits of creativity, but we know that the author is giving us a fair description of what is going on. Yet some writers break that covenant with the reader. They twist their words and their descriptions, running rings around the audience until the reader can't tell what's truth or fiction in the world she's reading about. It can make for an exhilarating read as tropes are challenged and assumptions are turned on their head. Joining us today is Camilla Bruce, whose new novel, You Let Me In, challenges the reader to separate the fictional truth from the fictional fiction in the life of her protagonist. As such, we felt she would be the perfect guest to join us in a discussion of the interplay between narration and characterization. Thank you for joining us, Camilla. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, my name is Camilla and I am the author of You Let Me In. Uh, I am also Norwegian and I live in Norway as well, but I wrote the book in English, so it has not been translated. Before uh, writing this book, I have worked with fiction in many different ways. Uh, among other things, I have been an editor and publisher for Belladonna Publishing and have uh, published a couple of anthologies through that. But this is my first novel. And I'm really, really happy to see that so many people have read it and appreciated it already. And I have to say, writing a whole novel in English when you're Norwegian is is just a feat in itself. <laughs> I certainly couldn't write a whole novel in Norwegian. No, <laughs> I had been practicing a lot. First of all, I did know English beforehand, before, you know, we have it in school. When I was in my 20s, I started writing fan fiction and was a part of fandom for about a decade. And that's actually where I learned myself to, taught myself to, to write in English. And after that, it sort of became a habit. And now I can't imagine actually writing fiction in any other language, including Norwegian. What kind of fan fiction did you used to write? And uh, this was back in the late 90s. So my first fandom was Buffy the Vampire Slayer find some fellow converts here <laughs> you're very welcome <laughs> and then i moved on to lord of the rings and some anime and i visited a lot of different fandoms throughout that period of time and it was an experience that taught me a lot it taught me how to write in many ways because you had the ready audience there I think that's certainly how a lot of writers have come to, to their craft, I have to admit. Um, and speaking of craft, let's talk about how you've gone about writing You Let Me In. So plenty of writers choose first-person viewpoint as a means to create immediacy, but by having your first-person narrator telling a story that's already happened, do you feel that you might have lost some of that immediacy? And if so, what do you think you've gained by telling it in this way? First, I have to say that when I started writing it, it wasn't actually a conscious choice. Uh, it was sort of how this, uh, because a lot of people ask me how I crafted this story, because it has uh, uh, different, it has parallel uh, storylines. And uh, they ask me how I uh, sort of uh, 
work this out if I had the detailed outlines and so, things like that. But I didn't actually have that on this novel, this particular project. It was a very intuitive process. So this was sort of how the story came to me. I didn't really see any reason to to change that either because it's worked. <laughs> I also think that uh, what you gain by doing it this way is that because this describes a story that has already happened, is that the same uh, excitement you feel when you come across uh, something from history, something that, that's intriguing, something that happened one time, and you sort of follow the threads back to see where they came from, where this event or this thing that happened came to be. And that's sort of the same uh, exploration I think you can do with a novel like this, that you can... It's the gratification of seeing how it could end the way that it did. Yeah, there are lots of, I'm thinking, fantasy and adventure novels that do this kind of telling the story from looking back on it. You know, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, they do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And even like Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels. It's a very, it's quite a common thing. And it's interesting because I always think about reflecting back on our lives, our memories are imperfect. So when we tell these stories or have our characters tell stories looking back on their lives or back on something that happened a long time ago, does that immediately make it that kind of unreliable narration because they can't possibly know everything, even if they're attempting to tell you the truth as they see it? Yeah, that's very fascinating, actually, that that thing with the unreliable memory and the false memories. And I think in a novel like this, where it's supposed to be ambiguous and it's supposed to be um, not so cut and clear what's actually the truth, I think, uh, yes, it will be automatically an unreliable narrator when she talks about things that has already happened. But that's sort of the point with, with this particular novel. It's supposed to be like that. So in this instance, I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I love unreliable narrators. I still remember being in high school and uh, being given A Telltale Heart to read um, by Edgar Allan Poe. And I was like, yep, unreliable narrators are the best things ever. So <laughs> I'm on board for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, I love them myself. That's why I wanted to write it, obviously. <laughs> what about other modes of narrating? So you, you've got potentially less immediate form of narration with like epistolary forms, using things like Dracula and Frankenstein, another great horror novels. But, you know, they can also be effective at creating tension. I mean, how do you think that there's anything that you get out of that real first person thing that you can't get in a different form of narration? Yes, actually, I I used to write in third person for a very, very long time. But to me, I sort of found my voice through switching to first person narration because it it felt more immediate and because I wanted to, uh, it sort of, it unlocked things for me to be able to write from someone's head rather than standing a meter away and look in at it, at the events that happened. I mean, I agree. Telling the story through the first person, I find actually easier. But when, say, we write in third person or epistolary form, 
So, you know, through the form of letters mm-hmm. or collected documents, you know, how do you manage to create that tension or that immediacy that you, that comes so easily with a first person that, you know, how do you recreate that with other forms of narration? I think that when you start reading a book like this or any book like this, who uses different uh, mediums like uh, letters or newspaper clippings or things like that. It's sort of like sending the reader out on a on a treasure hunt, and that's sort of the appeal of the story that you have to find all these pieces and puzzle them together and sort of move through different mediums to get to the prize or not, depending on the novel. And so I think it could it's, it's sort of a, a playfulness to it, and I think it appeals to people who like puzzles and strangeness. Megan was talking about books that are in the forms of letters and in a strange way You Let Me In kind of is like that because it's sort of first person, it's sort of immediate but it's also Cassie talking to her nephew and niece Penelope and Yanis and it's you sort of do have that conflict between the immediacy of first person and the fact that this has already happened and already been read already happened in her past and I found the little hints you dropped um were really good so anybody who's read my review on it on Ginger Nuts Horror there are a few examples in there and you just drop in little things like we'll get to the bodies later and I found that a really good way of kind of keeping the tension going and remembering that something dreadful was coming up and that although this was all done we still had a hell of a ride to go through and we weren't really sure who was going to live or die at the end of it. Yeah, because that's the, that's the thing, because the framing sort of creates a tension that wouldn't have been there without it if you just told the story as it happened and then you were done with it. Um, but because you have this nephew and niece who is reading this letter, uh, you sort of have this tension coming. So that was absolutely helpful in keeping the tension up, even if it's told looking back at what has happened. I find it interesting with horror stories and how there's actually quite a few examples of the whole narrative being played out and in a kind of factual account or like, you know, the, the narrator is researching and reporting on what happened. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, you know, the, the kind of puzzling it together, the, the reader gets to puzzle along with the narrator. It's kind of a nice way to get the, the reader to really identify with the narrator, which I think works really well. Do you know my favourite example? I've probably said this like so many times, but my favourite example of like the epistolary form kind of working posthumously, as in like Stoker has no idea that they did this in the film Bram Stoker's Dracula, but the scene where Mina is standing on the deck of the ship and she's ripping out parts of her diary and throwing them into the waves i.e. the bits where she totally had an affair with Gary Oldman's Dracula because he's super hot. Yeah, so that, that mm-hmm. is so, I thought it was really clever for them to do that, to actually have this like, this scene because suddenly, I mean, it, it reminds you that the entire time that you're reading Dracula, you, it's like her diary and it's letters and, and actually she is an unreliable narrator. I mean, who knows she could have just stood on the deck of the ship and ripped out whatever she wanted, leaving you with the finished, you know, this is what Stoker has presented us with. So I really like that idea of the unreliability of, 
of things like letters and diary entries because they're so personal and, you know, and we self-censor all the time. I love that idea. I I think that's a really nice one where she's ripped out the pages that we don't get to read in the future. That's a a nice touch. It's it's just my thing because I'm like, yeah, yeah, they totally got it on. (laughs) (laughs) It's just you couldn't write about it. Yeah, actually, it's one of my favourite novels of all time. I read it for the first time when I was 11 and I actually think it has been sort of, I've always loved that, that sort of storytelling. So I think it's been like in subconsciously sort of an uh, inspiration, perhaps one of the reasons why I like to write my stories the way I do uh, with all the letters and so such. So thinking about other forms of writing, um, You Let Me In is a very, very personal story for Cassie and you really get inside her head. And obviously there is a little bit of every writer in their characters, um, author surrogate is a literary term that's used when a fictional character is based on an author or has a sort of a, a strong relevance to them. Perfect example would be Stephen King and those books he's written, um, Bag of Bones, uh, The Shining, um, things like that, where he is writing about a writer, which kind of gives yet another level to it. And they're sort of almost not autobiographical, but a very strong association. And then in a more distant view, you have something like uh, the character of Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, which put forward a lot of Michael Crichton's views about catastrophes and things like that in the book itself. So I kind of wanted to ask, how much of you is there in Cassie? And I appreciate that's a bit of a delicate question because Cassie is is quite a messed up and confused young lady. But given that she's a writer and you're a writer and you get so inside her head, I think it's a, a question worth asking. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm obviously not Cassie and Cassie is obviously not me. But I've been thinking a bit, a bit about it and I absolutely believe that as brain children, all your characters inherit something of you. And I think that Cassie especially has inherited my, my bit of my darker side or the more uh, cynical side of me, I think. We have this expression in Norwegian which translates black-sighted or dark-sighted because of the, the way she views the world. Uh, she, she doesn't really trust anyone's motivations. And she is uh, not bitter because she, she has accepted that she is different from the rest. But she, has this, uh, she, she feels this distance from other people keenly. And that's sort of a part of me. You know, you don't notice it in my everyday dealings with people and things. Uh, because it's just one part of many. But I think that I lent Cassie that side of me when I wrote the novel. Obviously, like I say, everybody has a little bit of character. And as you, you've said, Cassie is not completely you. <laughs> um, but do you think there are times when self-insertion into a narrative is a good idea? Um, for marginalised writers, for example, whose experiences are perhaps not widely known, do you think it could actually be a valuable way of communicating relevant issues directly to a reader that you wouldn't perhaps get if there was that slight distance with the characters? I don't think there's anything that that's wrong when it comes to fiction. I think you, the way you choose to tell a story, I don't think there's not some ways that are valid or not. It's more about the execution. If you can do this in a way that's 
still delivers a compelling story, I don't think it can ever be wrong. There are writers who have sort of done careers in writing about things that are about themselves. And not, I'm not talking like uh, autobiographies, but sort of uh, have been open with the, the fact that this is based on real events. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, I don't think there's possible to go wrong as long as the story is good. So thinking about the other element of the question, the fact that Cassie herself is a writer and she's a writer of romantic novels, I think, isn't she in the book? <laughs> um, which is, is perhaps, along with horror, is one of the genres that's not necessarily frowned upon, but one that is seen as being very, very imaginative and overdramatic and, and stuff like that. So you've kind of got an assumption there with making Cassie a romance writer. So I wondered with, do you think by making Cassie a writer and a romance writer in particular, that the audience is going to be very tempted to distrust a tale because telling stories and exaggerated stories is what she does best? Uh, probably, yes. But again, that's that's not really a problem with this particular novel uh, because I want there to be as much doubt as, as possible. But of course, that raises a lot of other questions why is it like that? Why is uh, romance frowned upon? Why is horror frowned upon? But, but of course, there's something about Cassie having a pretty horrible life in many ways, no matter what's the truth or not. So, of course, you will, will think that she may be writing those things as a sort of escapism from hard reality. And that's okay. That's not a problem. I think that could very well be the case. And I don't see any problems with that either. I have to ask, in your head, do you know which reality is true for Cassie? No, I don't. <laughs> you don't? For you, it's just as confusing. Yes, I have been asked that question many times since the novel came out. I don't know and I don't want to know. And it was sort of, it was one of the fun, fun things for me as well when I, wrote it to not know because it was very satisfying or very interesting for me uh, to uh, create a truth and then tear it down again on the next page it was sort of it was like a game I played with myself and it was uh, a very fun experience actually so you didn't have lots of notes surrounding you telling you which direction you were going to be going and oh Cassie's going to think this and then I'm going to undermine (laughs) it like this it just kind of came as it came yeah, it was very intuitive, actually. I, it's the most intuitive project I've worked on ever. I usually I, or very often have like elaborate notes and timelines and outlines. Um, so female writers of female protagonists often have them labelled as Mary Sue's, an idealised vision of the author herself. Um, although there's a lesser known male version of this trope, which is sometimes called the, the Gary Stew, uh, why do you think women are more likely to be accused of subscribing to this trope? Because it, it does seem a bit unfair that we're always seem to be labelled as 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 Mary Sue's, and the Gary Stew is is hardly kind of ever heard of. Yes, that's very unfair because I'm pretty sure there are as many, if not more, Gary Stews out there as there is Mary Sue's. Yes, <laughs> but it's nothing new that female writers or women in general are sort of being undermined and and uh, that uh, people would try to portray them as silly or of no consequence. 
So I think that's sort of just a part of the nasty pattern. <laughs> and then there's also something implied in that, uh, which I think sort of relates to Cassie and her romance writing, that uh, she is sort of uh, escaping her reality through through fiction. And, and that's sort of not supposed to be a good thing to do. But I think it can be a very healthy thing to do <laughs> if you are under strain to actually find an escape, as many young girls especially do through uh, dreaming and fantasizing and making up a better version of reality for themselves. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it can uh, even act as a, as a survival mechanism if things are really bad. I really hope that uh, imagining a better situation is not bad because I do that all the time, especially during lockdown, because anything's got to be better than just sitting at home by myself with my cat. Uh, I mean, I love my cat, but weeks and weeks of just the cat is a little bit much. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the um, sad thing that uh, these female fantasies are sort of frowned upon uh, especially since uh, while male fantasies are sort of never questioned at all, never labeled a Gary's do, even if it probably is. So I think it's uh, pretty unfair, yes. But as to why, old mm. nasty patterns. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it, to really kind of answer that, the, the kind of why does that happen? Because I think you're right. I think old patterns, I think that, rather poisonous trope kind of ties into an awful lot of the other tropes and problems that we discuss so regularly on this podcast about women's representation and some Mm -hmm. you know I think it's a it's part of um what Charlotte's talked about before with yeah and we've actually just mentioned that you know romance writing and um how romance as a genre is perceived and how it's then applied to other genres like science fiction and fantasy and that you then get this bizarre uh, opinion that women who write fantasy must be writing romantic fantasy or romantic science fiction and that actually the science fiction fantasy elements are tamped down in favour of a great romance plot which you know and, and people seem to level those judgments at female writers while not leveling them at male writers and I feel like Mm. that's tied into the Mary Sue and the idea of a woman putting herself into the narrative as a better and more shining version of the you know reality but as you say I think this you only have to look at the kind of buff warriors in you know the books with axes on the covers and and the and the farm boys who grow up to yeah. be, you know, that is Gary Stew all over. That's Gary Stew, definitely. Well, as a romance reader and writer and editor, <laughs> I kind of feel I ought to comment a little bit on that. I must admit, I, I look at a lot of the romance, it's very formulaic. And I think a lot of the reason that romance writers are often labelled as Mary Sue's is because there was a time when women really did just want to get a husband to improve themselves. And you just need to look at all the titles of, say, Mills and Boone and things. And obviously, that's my my main reading material. There are other, you know, much nicer chocolate shop kind of ones where they open up businesses and everything. But at the end of the day, all of the romance ends up with the guy and the girl getting together and having a happy life and a better life than they had when they were two individual people. And I think a lot of people used to assume that that's all that women wanted because traditionally that's what they put on them. 
But I've been reading an awful lot about Georgian England recently, and there have been some interesting interviews, sorry, not interviews, interesting letters from Jane Austen to her family, where she's basically gone, oh yeah, I can't be bothered with marriage. And she's not (laughs) interested at all. And there is perhaps the epitome of the romance writer and all the wonderful books she's written about people getting together and living happily ever after. And she was like, nah, it's not for me. So I think it is a little bit unfair when it comes to romance that people do assume that women are just writing about the wonderful partner that they would like. But I think it's a little bit easier for women to write about fantasy and things because you don't, I was about to say, you don't necessarily write about dragons because you want to own a dragon. And then I realised how stupid that was because who wouldn't want to own a dragon? But it's it's perhaps something we would not necessarily associate with women rather than men because everybody mm-hmm. wants a dragon. Yeah, everybody wants a dragon. I want a dragon. And I also think that there's something about knowing what is real or not uh, because a lot of uh, women don't read romance necessarily because they they want to read about something that's uh, going to happen to them one day as I think people often assume it's more of a a fantasy (laughs) it's not you know it's like with fantasy you know you're not going to to ride the dragon because dragons aren't real and maybe the romance in romance novels you want it to be but maybe you also know that probably not. One day we have to do the dishes and things won't be so swell. That's a very good point. Or maybe that's just the cynic in me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very good point that it's it's more difficult to label someone as writing a, a self-fulfilling fancy um, because it's got dragons in it or it's in the, the far future and has electronics and things in it, then it is something that is a bit more achievable, even if it was something achievable in the past, say in Regency times. Yeah, it's still it's still much more likely to happen in your lifetime than having a dragon, which is such a shame. <laughs> yeah. So sticking with the idea of having your own dragons, uh, why are stories with speculative fiction elements so good at handling the question of what is real and what is not real? And are there any sort of particular fantastical or supernatural devices that you think work well to throw reality into doubt? I think (laughs) that uh, the speculative fiction works well to question reality because it is speculative. (laughs) I think it's sort of in... In, its, in the nature of speculative fiction to, to question things, if that is a political uh, model or a scientific achievement or, or something, or if there are fairies in the woods, it's the question mark is always there. That's sort of what it does. <laughs> so that's why I think it, it works especially well uh, for that. I think that uh, when it comes to what devices works, uh, it's particularly the uncanny that speaks to me, that which looks human or of humanity but isn't. Uh, the sort of this idea that something can hide behind humanity and look like something familiar, like the magic in the mundane, but it isn't. So that's something that has been, that is sort of uh, an important part of, of horror fiction and something that I personally enjoy working with as well. Well, that's something that goes back to the dawn of storytelling with the idea of werewolves and wendigos and all those kind of things that look like a man and you let them into your home and then suddenly they're not. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's a, an excellent device that has been used throughout throughout the ages. And I think still is being reused in new and interesting ways, as I think you found with Pepperman, who is a wonderfully unique character. Mm-hmm. 
I think the fairies are especially good at, at presenting the uncanny. I mean, you have all these ideas of fairy feasts and, and stuff in the woods, you know, and, and then the food turns out to be just leaves and acorns and pebbles and dust and things are not what they seem. And that makes you sort of question your own reality and question reality in general. And that's sort of one of the reasons why I like fairies so much. It's so unpredictable and it's nothing is really what it appears to be. So what other devices are really good? You know, they're obviously speculative fiction and, you know, fantasy and science fiction. We They have these tricks kind of up our sleeves, writers of, of like genre fiction, um, which may be writers in, in a more kind of literary field or, or the field of kind of very straight general fiction don't have. So we you talked about fairies and fairy folk and this kind of idea of the uncanny turning the familiar unfamiliar. And I feel like all of these things are very unique to speculative fiction. And it's why like this genre can be so kind of clever uh pulling the rug out from under a reader's feet kind of at the last moment this i think ties in quite nicely to an episode we recorded um you know last week about magical realism um and it's something magical realism does really well um so what devices like literary devices or ideas have you found that work really well in storytelling to kind of turn the tables on the reader the the unreliable narrator obviously does that, but but that's not uh, especially for speculative fiction because that you find the same thing in in thrillers as well, uh, so that's sort of a more generic uh, device. But you also have this. Uh, the great thing for me uh, with speculative fiction is that you you don't have uh, the rules can be changed, and as long as you do do that in a way that the reader will accept somewhat. Uh, you can can sort of just uh, step out of the bounds of reality. And that's obviously very uh, particular for speculative fiction. Well, I mean, like, there's always been the classic, oh, it was all a dream. I mean, that's a terrible example, like, obviously. <laughs> but, I mean, it's that's the, the kind of thing that that fantasy and science fiction can do really well that they can they can present a world Mm -hmm. as as real and then kind of flip it and you realize it's not like a bit has anyone seen mirror mask i haven't no yeah it's really good it's about a mirror world and kind of clearly one of them is really fantastical and the other one is reality but it's like a classic kind of Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, where elements in the Wonderland start eerily to echo the elements in reality. And so it's like how in how in Peter Pan, it's like that really weird thing about the, the same actor who plays the father, like Wendy's father plays Captain Hook and stuff like that. So it's like starts getting really Freudian. Um, <laughs> but it's like this t- type of mirroring that science well science fiction and fantasy particularly fantasy um is really good at kind of employing i think what you're trying to say is that something like that those kind of elements will turn a simple narrative on its head and particularly i like the idea of peter pan with the father character playing father also playing captain hook which is in one of my favorite adaptations of peter pan which is the one starring jeremy sumter and the wonderful jason isaacs as both pan and the father and you're right, it's so Freudian, it's so wonderful, and it does add that extra element to it and just makes you makes you wonder. And also you get double Jason Isaacs, and who's going to complain about that? But I did wonder if there was any point 
when it might get too much. So do you think there's a point beyond which a story gets that it is so ambiguous, it's just incomprehensible? I mean, for me, the two that I tend to remember, less books, more films, is 2001 is the first one, where I just do not get the ending of that at all. Um, My husband says to me, oh, you have to read the book to understand it. And I'm like, well, if I have to read something else to understand what is presented to me, then it's too ambiguous and it's not a good film. And the same, I'm sorry to say, is another Kubrick film, which is The Shining. And I watched The Shining and I really didn't like it at all. And then I read the book and the book is fantastic. And I'm like, but it it doesn't, it's so much clearer. And being clearer and less ambiguous doesn't make it worse than the film. It actually makes it better because you pick up on all the nuances. And for me, I just feel that they've pushed a little bit too far. And I wondered if you had some thoughts on that, Camilla. I think that's actually a, how much... Um you you can stomach is actually a question of taste. I mean, some people really love surreal movies and surreal stories that just run away and never come back. And that's not for me. I do like to know that the, the writer has some sort of idea, at least, about how things uh, are supposed to stitch together. But I know people who, who, who doesn't have that, that need <laughs> for a narrative that is uh, clear and comprehensible. And so I think that's actually a question of personal taste more than anything else. I think I would have to disagree slightly um, <laughs> because <laughs> I do quite like an ambiguous ending um, and I like ambiguous storylines. I love unreliable narratives, as I've said. You know, I like trying to work out where that line between fact and fiction is, you know, obviously within the realms of fiction itself. But I really don't like it if it's too much of the ambiguous. So, again, I'm thinking of, of television, but Lost. I just couldn't get on with Lost because it was just always, like, just constantly throwing more questions at you. And so it, it never really gave you any kind of sense of, things were becoming clearer. So what I, I mean, maybe it is a personal thing, but I I do think that there needs to be kind of um, some payoff. You need to have some things become clearer. That doesn't mean you need to actually spell out absolutely everything, but there's got to be a little bit of both. I think if it's just completely ambiguous and there's just no clarity whatsoever, even readers who love ambiguous storylines are just going to be like, well... Yeah. Yes, and sometimes the questions are there just to be there, and and I don't personally like that when it just seems like they're they're throwing more questions in there just to have the questions in there just because that's what they do the throwing questions. There has to be some sort of uh, feeling of uh, that there is a plan somewhere. It's interesting you should talk about a plan because when we were putting questions together for this, we were talking about the idea that speculative fiction tends to carry a warning to humanity. And talking about when Megan was saying some elements are resolved and you don't need to have all of them resolved, I kind of feel that speculative fiction fails if it doesn't deliver a point to the story and it can't just be a random collection of things happening. The, the best example I can think of is Monty Python's Life of Brian, which is brilliant, and the Holy Grail, which is mad and seems to be, you know, going off in all directions, but still has a vague plot line that you can get to the end of and go, well, okay, it was about a quest for the Grail. And then you get Monty Python's and now for something completely different, which is just a series of sketches. And each one individually is good. And then you get to the end of it and go, well, there was nothing really hanging it all together. And I kind of feel the same for fiction, that if you 
get to the end of speculative fiction and you've got a message that you've taken away from it, even if it's just a subtle one or even if it's one that you've read over and over again, I feel that it's done its point. Uh, but if you get to the end and go, well, it was kind of cool and I really enjoyed bits of it, but what, what was the point of it all? <laughs> what am I supposed to come away feeling? Even if what I come away feeling is that life is ambiguous and I don't know the answer, like I did with your book, You Let Me In, I didn't feel dissatisfied that it hadn't all hung together. It had, it worked really well and it, it left me feeling confused, but confused in a good way and with the message of actually you know, we should be careful what we read and we should always look twice at things. And maybe there is a reality living alongside ours that some of us don't see and some of us do. And I think that's successful speculative fiction. And I think something like 2001, where I got to the end of it, went, Meh? I kind of don't feel that was successful, but it could be personal preference. I, I do take that point before people start calling in angrily and telling me how brilliant 2001 was. <laughs> But I absolutely think that the more ambiguous it is and the less the storyline, the less clearer the storyline is, the less people will like it as well. Uh, because uh, a lot of people like their fiction, if it is uh, movies or TV or books, to have a clear beginning and middle and end. That's okay. That's fine. So I think that, but I think that the more you derive from that standard formula, the the less people will actually enjoy it. So that's, of course, something to remember as a writer. So talking about ambiguity and leading pe people down the wrong path and things, um, I mentioned earlier on that your narrative gives constant teasers to the reader as to what's coming, like, oh, we'll get to the bodies and things like that. So how did you strike a balance between enough hints to tantalise the reader, to keep them wanting to read on, but not so many that you frustrated them or confused them or just had them go, oh, for goodness sake, what is going on here? Well, um, I have to admit that a lot of these uh, these uh, hints that is uh, throughout the, the story wasn't there in the beginning. I did have some of them, but most of them came to after editing. So I have my uh, wonderful editor to thank for that. But I think they work very well. And I think they have a sort of, they sort of works like a glue to keep the different part of the story together because they remind you that there's more to come on certain subjects. So I think that's a really great uh, device. So I'm intrigued. Did your editor go, oh, you need to add some in here? Or did they say, Camilla, you've got too many of these things. You've got to scrub at least seven out of 14. <laughs> no, she was like, hmm, maybe we should drop a hint here. Maybe we should drop a hint there. So that was really okay. So I, I didn't disagree with her decisions. Well, that's really interesting because when I've ghostwritten mystery stories, I always have little pointers in it and plan it all out so that I know when everything is coming and I can sort of, you know, drop hints here and there and make sure all the hints are planned out. But you said you just kind of wrote it and you didn't have copious notes for that one. So it must have been kind of hard to keep track of, of what you've been doing. Actually, I wrote it in six weeks. Uh, it was an enormously intense process. Uh, and I worked full time as well at uh, right then. So it was like I had this story in my head all day and then I came home and I wrote. So I didn't really have time to forget anything because I worked every day and it was this continuous process. That does sound very intense. I don't think I could manage that, but well done you. <laughs> <laughs> I was inspired. It was a very inspiring story. <laughs> I wanted to ask, like, how do the hints and things like that work alongside, you know, your unreliable narrator when you're setting up 
your narrator is someone who is questionable, you know, the whole narration itself is is ambiguous, and yet you're also dropping hints to keep people guessing or or thinking, oh, this is this is where it might be going. Like, how do you balance those two? Because they seem kind of at, at odds with one another. Well, I did know when I wrote it as well, so sort of where the story was going. I knew the main events. I just didn't know exactly how it would play out. And also I was thinking if I was Cassie and I had my niece and nephew, and it's obviously very important for her to have them read this thing. She wants to tell them these things. She even has this password hidden inside the pages that they need to go and, and get their inheritance. So it's very important to her. And I was thinking that, of course, she, she would do and say whatever it took just to keep them there reading. And then I think that uh, this idea of, of dropping hints became important as a, as a way of keeping them there. And just because she knew that, that they would want to know about the murders. I have to say that in my review, I quoted a little passage of it that I just thought was absolutely brilliant. Like you say, the, the premise of the novel is that it is a manuscript that is written by Cassie that is to go to Yanis and Penelope and they have to sit and read it and hidden within it is this keyword that they take to the lawyer and then they get the inheritance. And there's just this one bit, sort of maybe about two thirds, three quarters of the way through, where she does give them the keyword and says, the keyword is this. On the other hand, I might change my mind on the next page. You're going to have to keep reading. And I thought that was really wonderful because it kind of worked in an extra level as well as her giving these hints throughout the novel, like getting to the bodies and oh, I'll have to tell you about that later or that's how we died or whatever. You then got this very one that almost jerks you back out of the narrative, but not quite, and then led you back. I just thought it was it was so complex and worked on so many levels that I'm very surprised that you didn't have copious notes everywhere keeping track of what time period you were in and what she was saying. So I just found it really interesting that you said that you, um, English is not your first language, but you wrote this book in English and you couldn't imagine kind of not writing it in English. I mean, I just find that really interesting, like the differences between um, your native language and, and English and would the, I mean, obviously you said you, you couldn't imagine it, but if you could and if you did, would writing the book um, in Norwegian make a big difference to the way that you told the story? Yes, absolutely. It just, it, that has something to do with, with actually the, the rhythm of the languages. It would have been a different story and, and I couldn't have told this story in Norwegian in the same way at all. Oh, I just find that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's just a different story. It would not have worked. It would have sounded stupid in Norwegian. But then again, there are stories that could be, that can be told in Norwegian that wouldn't work as well in English as well. So for me, English is a richer language to write fiction in because you have more words. So that's a big yes. We tend to steal words from many other languages. I have to admit, thinking about horror novels that have been translated into different languages, one of my favourite ever novels is Hex. And I'm not even going to uh, make a fool of myself by trying to pronounce the gentleman's name. It's by a gentleman called Thomas and then his last names. But it is just an amazing book. And it's set in small town America. And it says on it that it was originally written in a different language and set in a different country. 
and it had been translated and the whole setting had been moved. And I would love to be able to read just a tra- straight translation of the original novel and see how different it was in sort of cultural aspects and in, like you say, words or an, and imagery. And I wondered if it would still work as well. Um, I mean, would you ever be tempted to, you know, try and translate some of your Norwegian writing into English or write or in the future write a novel that could be for both cultures? Yeah, well, actually, I am working on something now that is set in Norway, but is is uh, written in English. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of that's interesting. I have also written a novel that uh, comes out next year, which is about uh, which is a historical novel about a Norwegian woman who moves to America. So it's very interesting to to try out my own culture in a more international context. Yeah, I just think that's so interesting. It just shows how important. Um, languages on a kind of god on like multiple levels like on a cultural level on a on a kind of literary really literary level and and how we use uh, language is such an ever-evolving thing and we how we use it to interact with the world and how we use it to kind of tell our stories and understand stories it's just really interesting i think the differences between languages and storytelling and there's also the fact that that to me english by now it's sort of like putting on a, a uniform when you go to work, you know, put on your work clothes. And it's sort of become that for me when I start writing, it's in English. And then I done writing, I switch back to Norwegian again. So it's sort of a uniform. That's pretty cool as well. <laughs> I've never heard of it described like that. So it's certainly a talent I wish I had. That that sounds amazing. To write in one language and then go make tea talking to your family in another, that's just a level of competency that I would never get to. <laughs> Sometimes after writing all day and putting all my thoughts on paper, my daughter comes up to me, I'm like, words, mummy has none, go, just iPad, just no. <laughs> you know, and that's in my own language. Right, we have done a load of really serious questions and talked all around some fascinating issues but there is one question that I wanted to ask which is my own version of a curveball and I wanted to know if there are any occupations that rarely feature in a speculative fiction story. Now I read a lot of King so I'm used to my characters being writers or doctors or something like that and I was trying to think if there were any really good occupations that would make for an absolutely fantastic speculative fiction story. And I did think about dinner ladies being a really good one. And then I realised that Doctor Who had already done it when they'd done the David Tennant episode where he goes into the school and Rose has to be a dinner lady and it has all the, the background stuff. And I know that there's also like the demon headmaster and things for, for kids. So that's obviously going to feature demonic demon dinner ladies or aliens from space or something like that. So mine fell flat on its face, but I wondered if any of you had any good occupations that you think really need to be done stories. I was thinking about hairdressers, stylists. Thank goodness, yes. That would be great. I mean, they come so close to people and they sort of can notice the little details. Well, like when you're sort of shaving Damien's hair and, and you find the 666 yeah. and imprinted on his skull. Oh, that's a good idea. I like that. Or if the hair you just cut off started to move. <gasps> you need to write a whole book of these now. Come on. <laughs> um, what about recycling men and women? Because it's such a, a job that nobody talks about and it's a job that a lot of people kind of 
almost don't think happens. Um, it's just part of like, you know, you put the rubbish out. That's something we don't see very often. And think, think about all the things that people actually throw away. And they think once it leaves your house, you're like, oh, I don't care anymore. It's gone. But it's not really gone because it think how many other hands it must sift through before it is finally destroyed. I mean, on a similar note, there's always, you know, uh, space operas or, or anything that, kind of sci-fi that's set in space. And you've got these wonderful spaceships and we never talk about them being cleaned, but somebody's got to clean them mm-hmm. or they're going to be disgusting. So who's cleaning them? <laughs> I, I see your comment and I raise you Red Dwarf. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, except for Red Dwarf, which is obviously fabulous and very serious. Very, very serious. Totally serious. Mm-hmm. But didn't they have some of that in the new BSG? I thought they had all the different ships and some of them, wasn't one of them a, a mining ship or something like that? And they did genuinely have workers and they were trying to deal with them at the same time. But even so, that was like a side issue to the president and the commander of the fleet. So it wasn't exactly, you know, the main point of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, I was thinking more things like Firefly or like where where you have small ships. So I just read Chilling Effects by Valerie Valdez. And so it's a space opera. You've got kind of typical small crew in a ship and there's all sorts of things talked about like they have this big container for like a load of psychic cats but they never talk about cleaning it i'm just like is is all that poo just collecting or i don't know maybe i'm just overthinking the whole cleanliness of the spaceship situation but it it does seem like something that is is definitely missed out yeah i kind of feel the trouble with things set in space is they usually have a bacteria that will sort it out so they'll have had a particular cat's poo eating bacteria that they will have just you know sprayed into the into the compartment and it will all be fine so i think sci-fi tends to, to find little workarounds as to how not to have people at those levels but it really shouldn't i mean we're recording this in lockdown and the most important people these days are the postman keeping us collect connected it's the people who do empty our bins on a, a regular basis so that in some cases they can throw out all of the food that they'd um, panic bought and, you know, now have no need for. But it's people who drive lorries, who serve at the at the checkouts. It's people in the pharmacy. It's so many people that are generally overlooked by society. I've just got the most important roles now. And I kind of feel that after the pandemic, it would really be a terrible shame if we didn't get in some more of these fabulous people who are are really running the world right now while everybody else is hiding away. And they're, they're really important. And I think they are genuinely overlooked when it comes to speculative fiction in favour of doctors and writers and starship captains. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, but I've been thinking a little bit about all the writers that are protagonists. And I'm thinking that one of the, the reasons why that is, I think, is because they live lives that are sort of uh, compatible with... Uh, they, are, they are good setups because they spend so much time alone or with just a small group of people, their families or friends, and they don't go to work. So they have all they have all hours and hours to sort of go on adventures. And they also do this very sometimes obscure research and come across strange texts and so forth. So there's something about writers that also sort of works as an occupation for a main character. And I have to say, as someone who writes horror, there always comes a point in my novels 
where I have to have my characters accept that what is happening is real and not some illusion. Yes, they are monsters. Yes, they are werewolves attacking your house. Yes, they are aliens from outer space, whatever. And it's so much easier to do it with someone who already has an imagination like a writer. Um, or I suppose we talked to Premier Mohammed about science and how, you know, science and religion often inter are interrelated within novels. And it's that idea scientists are always looking for the what if. So they make really good repositories for stories and writers are the same. Um, so if you don't have something, if you don't have them in a career that naturally has them questioning things, you've got to have them as a the kind of person who would question and then ultimately would accept as well. It's always the kind of air quotes, useful people of like, you know, it's captains, doctors, the engineers, you know, this kind of thing. And obviously I'm thinking sci-fi rather than fantasy, but where are the marketers? You know, where are the people who are like, hey, come and, and get us to you know, move your shipments across the galaxy? It's people like that who are definitely still going to exist, but that never get mentioned. Or, you know, you'll you'll see something where it's like, oh, you know, and I logged into the, the net and it's full of just personalised advertisements. It's like, yeah, but who's who's creating those ads for you? Hmm? Where are those people? That's a lovely idea. And it reminds me of Douglas Adams when they have the Golga Frinchens and they send all their telephone sanitizers and their hairdressers off in a ship. And they're the only ones that survive because the other two accidentally get sucked into the sun. But it was Douglas Adams making a point. You never have you know, the telephone sanitizers or the hairdressers or the marketing consultants being the heroes of the science fiction. And here they are as the only ones who survived. And what does a story look like if it's them? And the ultimate irony being, of course, it's what we all developed from. But uh, that is a Douglas Adams irony. Well, I kind of feel that we have covered every form of ambiguity it is possible to have in a story and also the various devices writers employ to keep readers guessing. It is clear that the level of ambiguity that is acceptable in a piece of fiction is absolutely down to personal preference. However, we can all agree that where speculative fiction falls down is in its, is in its failure to have protagonists who are engaged in what society would consider more mundane roles. If you're a writer looking for a story that's never been told before, you'd be well advised to write about hairdressers, bin men and people who scoop up cat poo. I also feel that however hard I work, I won't ever be working as hard as someone who does a full-time job but still has the energy to come home and write a novel in six weeks and in another language. Camilla, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very nice to meet you all. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.